much love. We are back with episode four of season three of Ravage Love. Hi, Julie. Hello, Renee. How are you? You know, I'm going to just say this. My, my day started off with my Kobo breaking. Oh, no. Yeah. And um, my, my daughter like knocked it off the couch and it just was broken. And that's what my book was on this week. So oh. I had to go. <laughs> I had to, so I lost all my bookmarks. I lost everything. And then I had to go online and like find it. And it was a whole thing. So one of those days. Oh, man. Well, I'm mm-hmm. sorry to hear that. That's okay. How are you doing? I'm good. It is mildish here in Ottawa, which means it's snowing and I love snow. Blah. And yeah, it is mild. So it, yeah, it feels like spring might actually come around the corner. Although, you know, I've lived in Ottawa long enough to know we'll probably have an epic snowstorm in like March or April or May even. But for <laughs> now, it feels, yeah, classic. Uh, for now, it feels good. How are you? How's how's things in uh, Edmonton? You know, we've had like a few really nice warm days. Um, the way it kind of goes like in peaks and valleys. So it'll be like really gross and cold. And then it gets warm all of a sudden. And you're like, yes, th- there's a will to live. And then every day it's like a degree colder and a degree colder. <laughs> so today it's we had like eight degrees the other day. And then today it's one degree. And we're just like, what's what's coming next? Like. <laughs> You just you're on edge all the time here, but it is really sunny out. It's just breezy. It's really cold, but like the wind, but looks nice. It's not eight degrees. Yeah, it's not eight degrees, but we will take it. And I, yeah, it's the last episode of Black History Month. So I'm really excited to talk about our final two books of this month. I'm. I've been really lucky that every week (laughs) has been so like literally got better every single week, like every single week. I'm like, this is it. This is the best one. And then the next week I'm like, nope. And I'm just going to say, Renee, this week again, it's, this is top shelf, top shelf reading. So I'm excited this week because I'm, yeah, I feel a hashtag blessed. How about you? You know, my book was great. Awesome. My my and I'll get into why. So hit me. I want to know what this book was about. Whoo. Well, first I want to tell you a bit about the author because I had never heard of Alyssa Cole, but she made a fan out of me. So Alyssa Cole is an American author of contemporary sci-fi and historical romance. Oh. The book I read this week was Historical Romance, which you know is my favorite. And her stories include diverse casts of characters with a variety of professions from Civil War spies to uh, she has a book about a modern day. uh, Okay, so everyone knows I can never pronounce anything properly. Epidemiologist? Epidemiologist? Epidemiologist. Yeah, that's good. You did it. Which is a word that comes out a lot in the context of COVID and I can read it, but I feel like I can never say it out loud. Um, (laughs) She also writes a combo of straight and queer lit, which I thought was cool. She's 38, so like she's not old and she's cranking out some amazing books. And the book I'm reading that I read this week was published in 2018. But an interesting tidbit about Alyssa Cole, and this is a bit of a throwback for those of you who've been longtime listeners, which we love you. Hi. Thanks for Hi. listening. <laughs> is in 2019, there was a real dust up with the Romance Writers of America where they suspended one of the kind of big people, part of who did that work. Uh, Her name is Courtney Milan. Uh, They suspended her for calling out racism within the romance shot, and in particular, another romance writer. And Alyssa Cole, so the author of this week's book, actually went public on Twitter with screenshots and like in kind of the... um, the receipts basically to prove that Courtney had in fact been suspended for calling out racism. Um, so she was really an ally to Courtney in that whole debacle um, and showed all of the receipts online that w- was able to sort of 
garner a lot of um, groundswell of support for Courtney. Um, and also, you know, groundswell of opposition for the racists within the Romance Writers of America. So yes. Alyssa Cole's a great writer and she's also good people. And there's nothing in this world I love supporting more than that. So I also want to say that this book was I want to say not not even probably was the most beautifully written romance I have ever read it was every like it was so poetic like so unbelievably beautifully written like I was just like passages that I just was like oh my god and here I was thinking I you know I'm only reading romance for this fun little podcast I have with my friend but I was like, oh my gosh, if this, like, this is it. Like, this is how I felt this week when I read the story. I'm like, this has all of the elements. Like, I'm the circle in the Venn diagram <laughs> of this book. Because, yeah. So I'm going to get into it, but it's so good. And right from the jump, this is the dedication in the book. Dedication. For anyone with a heart of glass, shattered glass possesses its own kind of beauty. You're like, okay. Aww. Okay. We're already getting, you're getting me. So, Set in 1820 Harlem. And Mercy is a servant who grew up in an orphan, or who grew up in an orphanage. So that's a classic romance tale that we hear a lot. Um, And she has always dreamed of being a writer. And she is a servant for a certain someone. And her main job is transcribing interviews that this certain someone is doing with people who knew her very famous husband. Mercy is a servant for Mrs. Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) What? (laughs) No. And then in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, that's cool. So like, maybe she's also Puerto Rican. And I was like, nope, nope. Lin-Manuel Miranda is Puerto Rican and made (laughs) Alexander Hamilton Puerto Rican. But founding father Alexander Hamilton was not for me. Um, so I just literally picture this woman working for Lynn Manuel Miranda. That's just like. How can you think anything different? I love it. Oh, love it. Oh, I love it so much. So she, Mrs. Alexander Hamilton is trying to write a book about her man. And so she is conducting interviews or getting her servant, Mercy, to conduct interviews with anyone who worked with him, who had a relative that worked with him, who benefited from his work. So this is kind of Mercy's job is that she was started off as a servant, but because she has beautiful writing and is just loves to write. Uh, so it's, she has been tasked with uh, transcribing these interviews. So Mrs. Alexander Hamilton chats with the person and Mercy writes down notes and kind of makes it sound pretty. So one morning she's getting ready to start her day and I'm going to butcher another name and you're going to help me. Uh-huh. Is it Andromeda? Is that it? Yeah. That- okay. Woohoo. Got it. Bingo. <laughs> so one morning she sees a woman kind of silhouetted in the door frame and is just like shook. And it turns out her name is Andromeda Steele. And oh yeah. And she is the granddaughter of a lieutenant who was under Alexander Hamilton. And this woman is a smoke show. But beyond that, she is super bold and confident and like does not take shit from nobody. And she's also a black woman. So right away, Mercy's sort of like struck by the fact that this woman is not only just a woman in 1820, like putting men in her place, but also a black woman in 1820 putting men in her place. So I guess the butler was like, um, I just let you in the house. I didn't tell you you could wander. And she's like, well, you're a rude host because it's cold outside and you didn't offer me anything. So I was looking for something to drink, like just like owning her space. And Mercy is very shy, very reserved, very, um, concerned about appearances and being prim and proper. So she's really sort of like attracted to Andromeda and like her power, but also kind of intimidated by it because, and kind of put off by it in a way, because Mm -hmm. she's like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're not being very ladylike, but also I'm intrigued by you. 
So it's Mercy's job to transcribe. So she's sitting in on this interview and Mrs. Alexander Hamilton is just smitten by this woman. Turns out they kind of knew each other and Andromeda is like cracking jokes. And Mercy's like, I've never seen like Mrs. Alexander Hamilton be that like carefree with someone. So like there's something, there's just like a special something, something. She's got like mojo that everyone just can't help but get into. Now, Mercy is very smitten and very sexually attracted to Andromeda because she's a smoke show, but Mercy is nursing a series of broken hearts and has kind of decided that she's given up on love because it's never worked out for her. And in almost every single case, it was because of homophobia, where women that she was in love with and that were in love with her would end up just marrying a man because it was easier and just kind of leaving her in the dust. So... She is, again, repulsed by her, can't stop looking at her, can't stop thinking about her, but also constantly checking herself and being like, no, we can't do this again, we can't do this again, just, like, do your job and move on. Well, Andromeda spends so much time just, like, making Mrs. Alexander laugh that she runs out of time, and so Mrs. Alexander Hamilton's like, oh my gosh, I have another appointment, but, like, Mercy, can you go into town tomorrow or the next day and continue the interview with Andromeda? And Mercy, of course, says yes, because she doesn't really have a choice, but is really kind of like, oh, shit, I don't want to be alone with this woman. I've got feelings that I'm trying to put to bed. So she goes into town and it turns out that Andromeda is a seamstress who owns her own shop. So again, like boss lady in 1820. And she goes there and you could tell she like really rules the roost, not just because she has staff that listens to her, but also when she shows up, she's like, you know what? I'm hungry. We're going across the street to the pub. And Mercy's like, we can't just go to a pub or two unmarried women. And she's like, "Uh, I do what I want. Goes in there. Everyone's like, hey, Andromeda. Everyone like knows her. She says hi to everyone. So again, Mercy's just like, this woman is just so like, just there's an enigma and I can't quite crack her. So she's trying to do the interview, but Andromeda is very clearly just hitting on Mercy the whole time. Cause Mercy wears very plain, boring clothes, but Andromeda is a seamstress. So she knows she's probably a smoke show under there and she's kind of hiding her body and she's a beautiful, she has a beautiful face and blah, blah, blah. So Andromeda is like basically putting the moves on this woman. And I'm going to read you a passage later of basically how they do you know, because what I'm fascinated by, by historic queer historical romance is like people are living like it's stealth everywhere, right? So how do you yeah. flag to someone in a way that's safe? So Andromeda kind of flags to Mercy and Mercy doesn't deny that she's also queer, but doesn't, you know, say that she is. So it ends up being this kind of like, okay, it's clearly understood. You're queer. I'm queer. What are we going to do about this? And again, Mercy's trying to pretend that she's like very uninterested when clearly she is. And... So they're in the thing and they, she kind of gets what she needs. And then at the end, um, she kind of gets some of the information, but she's still like basically trying to be like, hey, okay, like we need to actually, I need to do this job for Mrs. Alexander Hamilton. And she says, you know what? Fuck this. I'm taking you on a trip. And Mercy's like, I can't just go on a trip. Like I, I and she's like, yeah, get in this carriage situation. <laughs> Whatever the fuck they drove in 1820. Scooter? No. <laughs> <laughs> And we're going for a strut. So they, she goes for a drive and she takes her to this place and she's all like confused by the fact that it like just seems to be a building with like a passageway. And then they go through it and they get to a place <laughs> that is called the Pleasure Garden. Whoa. Which is the name of my sex tape. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's basically a courtyard full of black people making art and there's a stage where there's people doing like a dress rehearsal and there's people playing instruments and mercy's really taken aback because she's like this is just tons of black folks just like hanging out making art just living their lives and i don't feel out of place here for once and this is really beautiful then she's like oh yeah you know you want us we can sit in on this play and so Mercy's just like in her feelings because it's beautiful music and beautiful people and she just feels so comfortable. And there's this like really beautiful line at one point where Mercy's just like really taken aback by the scene and Andromeda thinks like, oh shit, I'm making her uncomfortable. And so she says, uh, and I quote, I'm impulsive, but I wish to give you pleasure, not cause you distress. Woo! Like big femme daddy vibes. So she takes her to the pleasure garden, which like honestly... 
could you come up with a better name? And it's, she has a grand old time. Mercy goes her own way. She goes back home. And then she's all like smitten, but again, telling herself she shouldn't be. And then she gets a letter from Andromeda. And it is on the surface, pretty chaste. Like, you know, basically I'm really interested in being your friend, but the subtext is like, gay, 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 sit on my face. <laughs> like, it's very obvious. But stealth. She ends up receiving six letters from Andromeda. And Andromeda is getting kind of more and more um, overt with what she's saying. But Mercy doesn't respond. And then Andromeda thinks like, okay, now I'm just bombarding this woman and she's not interested. And then Mercy writes her. And at first it's like, thank you so much for the correspondence. Like very, and in fact, she even signs it, obedient servant, Mercy. And then by the end is like yours cordially and very clearly is kind of war like warming up to her. And there's this like beautiful passage about how it was like, you know, it's, all of her letters feel like a flower that's like slowly blooming and like she feels more and more mm. comfortable writing to me. So they correspond back and forth and Andromeda is basically just like horny as shit for Mercy to just pull the trigger, but trying to be patient in part because she knows that Mercy's really shy, but also because in the past, She's been told that like she can be a little bit um, forceful and she doesn't want to meet people uncomfortable. And she's like, it's just because I'm I'm not afraid and I'm eager. And it's like, okay, cool. But that can be intimidating when you are like closeted, for example. So they're writing each other letters back and forth. It comes to be that Andromeda is trying to buy the boarding house next door so that she can take it over and have a second business. But because of both racism and misogyny, the owner of the building won't sell to her. And she's like, I have one business already. It's doing well. There's no reason to believe this one won't do well. And he's like, well, you know, I can't start selling my businesses to unmarried black women because it's too high risk. And she's just like, okay. So she takes a little trip for a couple days and you don't know why. So it's just like, hmm, okay. So then Mercy doesn't hear from her and thinks, oh, wow. You know, I finally kind of started getting more overt in my responses to her. I sent her a love poem. Uh, she is scared of me. Oh, shit. I screwed this up. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm so stupid. And then all of a sudden, Andromeda shows up at her house soaking wet. And there's a snowstorm. And she's gone for her trip. And she came back. And she's not going to be able to make it all the way back into town. So she asks if she can crash there for the night. It's a half truth. Like she could have made it home, but it was a convenient excuse for her to be like, I'm just going to drop in on Mercy and see what's up. So they play a little bit of cat and mouse. And then finally Andromeda is just like, come to bed with me, you dumb bitch. And so she does. <laughs> and they get down several times. It's very hot. It's very consensual. It's very delicious. Then in the morning, Mercy gets up, starts her day, picks up the paper and sees an announcement that Andromeda was recently engaged to this man named Martin Sheard. So she is like, oh, fuck, another goddamn heartbreaker who's going to leave me for a man. So she just basically ends up being really cold to Andromeda, who wakes up and is like, what the fuck? And Mercy's like, yeah, I got to get to work. So and Andromeda's like, OK. And then she's like, I'll call you a ride. So now Andromeda's like, OK, she doesn't want to, you know, she got too scared by her feelings or whatever. No idea that this announcement has been made in the paper. So Andromeda has no idea why Mercy turned cold, but she's obviously super hurt because they opened up to each other and everything. So Andromeda leaves. Mercy's fucking miserable to the point where they think she's caught some sort of cold because she's moping around. And they're like, oh my God, Andromeda came here from a storm. Maybe she has the flu and she gave it to you and you're going to die. And mm. So then on her next day off, she decides she's going to go into town. And she is going to go see Andromeda and she's just going to clear the air with her because she's like, I just need closure. So she's like, oh, I'm going to go there and I'm going to pretend that I'm going to buy a new dress from her. So she shows up there and obviously Andromeda's like giving her the cold shoulder of like, yeah, I'll sell you a dress, but like you're a dick and like get the fuck out of my, you know. And then it turns out, so they're doing this whole thing. They're trying to pick out a dress, blah, blah, blah. And then finally Mercy just kind of snaps and it's just like, when the fuck were you going to tell me that you, like, your little trip that you took was to go and get engaged? Like, what the fuck? And then you come into my bed? Like, rude. And Andromeda's like, oh my god, did that come out already? And she's like, uh, yeah, bitch, that's why I told you to get the fuck out of my house. She's like, oh my god, fuck, you should have just told me. I could have explained to you that Andromeda is a fucking genius. 
So Andromeda is like, oh, you're not going to sell me a business until I get married? Cool, cool. Goes back to her hometown, hits up like an old boo of hers, like literally like true lesbian story, gets an axe to help her. (laughs) (laughs) Goes back to her hometown. Turns out her ex runs like a printing company. So she says, can you just make up a announcement that I have engaged to a man that does not exist? And then I'm going to use that as proof that I'm getting married. And then, oh, my God, I'm going to buy this boarding house and get married. And then, oops, my husband's going to die of something. And then I'm going to be single and I'm going to have the boarding house. And right. And then she's like, and mercy, you dumb, dumb. My plan was to get the boarding house and then hire you, quote unquote, to come and work at it. So you can get out of working for, you know, Mrs. Hamilton out in the bush. You can live in town and we could live together and be together. And it looks like we're just two dames running a boarding house together. And she's like, oh, my God, I love it so much. So she's like, well, if you're going to work at my shop and live in town, you're going to need cute clothes. So then she's like, let me make you a dress. And by that, I mean, let me fuck you in my dressing room. (laughs) The end. Uh, so then there's a little epilogue where it says not only did they end up going ahead with their plan and working at the boarding house, but um, Mercy is also writing a screenplay for the Pleasure Aww. Garden because she's always wanted to do writing for herself and that she's teaching reading and writing to the kids at the orphanage where she was raised. I can't. Oh, I can't. My God. I can't. So it was like truly Renee, the prose was so beautiful. It was so beautifully written. The descriptions were like the tension was so good. And I'm telling you, if you listening to this, if you are like hot in the pants for Bridgerton and you want a book, (laughs) this is it. Because the thing about Bridgerton and like those types of, especially like period piece type romances, the thing that ever like women in particular are trying to get across right now is like, it's the longing and the sexual tension that makes these books so good, frankly. And I agree. Like, to me, that's the part that I love is that, like, even if it's not full-blown fucking, but there's, like, tension. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's not just, like, I met somebody and hooked up with them the same day. Because you couldn't back in the day, right? Yeah. So this book is, like, there's fucking in it. And it's, like, somewhat graphic, but not super graphic. But it's the sexual tension is off the chain. And it's so realistic that you're just, like... Yo, like, I too would want to sit on Andromeda's face. So, in terms of spice factor, I'm going to be cliched and say five out of five spicy tacos. um, Because (laughs) (laughs) it was good. Not just the fucking, but the sexual tension. And fully developed characters. Like, I knew who Andromeda was. I knew why she was the way she was. I knew why Mercy was like this kind of subservient person, not because she wanted to be, but because she had to like find, you know, being obedient was what got her through life. You know, like it just no cliches. Oh, 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 big, big fan. So the book is called That Could Be Enough by Alyssa Cole. um, And I highly, highly recommend it. It was delightful. I was, I mean, it could also be known as Lord Have Mercy. Um, <laughs> oh my God, that's such a better title. <laughs> and I had, I had a burning question. Was there like a fashion makeover montage written to, into the book? Uh, it alluded to it at the end. And I think if this was a movie, there would 100% be her like spinning on the pedestal while Andromeda's got pins in her mouth and like, um, like, Gus Gus the mouse the mouse from Cinderella would like <laughs> Gus Gus is my favorite Disney character and he's extremely underappreciated. Um, but yeah, like little Gus Gus would come out and like hold the measuring tape and like <laughs> and then she would emerge with like beautiful hair because yeah, they mention how like she has to keep her hair. She has her hair in like two cornrows instead of like the you know the big bouffants that are fashionable. And because Andromeda is a like dressmaker, her wardrobe is spectacular and so mercy always feels like the you know the downtrodden like pal and she's like don't worry girl i'm gonna make you look fine as hell so all i picture is like two hot femmes running a business in 1820 harlem and i want eight thousand books and movies about them because i'm obsessed (laughs) with what i will now refer to as lord have mercy by (laughs) (laughs) so what did you read buddy oh my gosh so i read 
another book from the collection of Catalina Dubois' um, Infinity series. So for those who listened last week, I I read a book about kind of like medieval romance uh, author Catalina Dubois, who writes um, this series called the Infinity series. And it's about these two star-crossed lovers who one was a goddess and one was like a human king and these gods got involved. And so they're cursed to have these um, star-crossed romances for the rest of their lives in different lifetimes. So <clears throat> I read Book of Matthew, um, which is like her most well-known story. And I know why. It was very good. Um, and it's about um, a plantation owner's son named Matthew Colburn and his best friend slash like plantation slave Sarah. Now, like... Like the book I read last week, there were a million characters and it's difficult to tell the story without mentioning these characters because they all intertwine and they all intersect and they all have a place in the story, whether they're villains or the good guys. Um, It's really, really hard to talk about this story. So I counted and there's over 30 important characters in this book. Oh my God. Yeah. And they all matter. So I, I tried to make a, like a quick synopsis of this story, but I'm going to just go ahead and recommend that everybody read it because it had twists and turns. It had romance. It had murder, you know, my favorite thing. It had a serial killer. It had some crazy vendetta scenes. It had underground railroad, it had everything, everything you could want in a book. It was in this, um, I will go ahead and say, though, that, you know, last week my book didn't have any sex in it. Um, It had a little bit of teasing, but like that was it. Um, And really the story overshadowed anything romantic about it. Um, This one was kind of the same. Like there was a romance piece to it. um, But and there was a sex scene and it's hilarious. So I'm going to read that today. But um, the book as, as much as the book was a romance, it's not what held my attention, just like last week. Like, the mystery in this book is really what held me. So if you like um, murder mysteries or detective stories, um, if you like historical romance or any historical novels, this was great. So here we go. So I'm ready. I hope you're ready. So the Colburns own a big plantation. They um, have you know, a bunch of slaves. Matthew is the son of the Colburns and he, um, really doesn't love the idea of slavery. He's very pro emancipation. Um, but he's also deeply in love with Sarah and Sarah is kind of like a healer. Um, and she works in the house as well. So she's learning how to be a like a healer slash doctor from um, this old woman called Aunt Lizzie. They have this little infirmary on the plantation. People bring um, their slaves over from other plantations. They're very well known. So the book opens Matthew's ill um, or he was ill. He's pretending to still be ill because Sarah's been his nurse. And so he looks forward every day to her coming in and like listening to his chest because she doesn't have a stethoscope or anything like that. And he's all into it. And he's constantly fantasizing about Sarah And these really graphic fantasies, except he recognizes that one, she's a slave and he's a white man and that has its own problems. The other piece is that because he is the son of a plantation owner, he doesn't want to use like abusive power by being forward with her or like pursuing her because he knows she would just like have to do it. And he doesn't want that. Sarah just turned 16. And she's invited Matthew to the spring festival. So there's a spring festival happening down where all the slaves live. So during this event, um, we meet a few of the other characters in the story. Some of them, there's a couple um, characters who are wards of the Colburns. So they're like mixed race. Um, And then everybody else is just kind of a slave. They're all friends. There are these two sisters called Anna and Mila. And they're really flirty and they like to have fun and, you know, all of that. And so um, that evening, Mila um, is like, I'm going to go hook up with this guy. And Anna's like, okay. Um, But then as they're 
you know, as the night goes on, Anna can't find her sister. She's like, oh, well, she probably went home with somebody. Um, but meanwhile, one of the wards of the Colburns is like walking through the festival and he sees this man with a wheelbarrow who he kind of recognizes. He's like, do you need help? And he's like, no, no, I got this. And then the guy walks away um, and you realize he's a serial killer because in his wheelbarrow is Mila. What? And so, yeah, so there's a full-blown serial killer in this book. So Anna goes back to her cottage and she realizes there's like blood all over the place. Um, and her sister's in there, even though this guy was like taking her away, the sister's there. And he's like, she's like, oh my God. And she's about to scream, but then hands come up behind her and catch her and Anna dies too. Then this character called Emmanuel and Emmanuel is one of the um, wards. He proposes to Sarah. And now Sarah's had a lot of um, propositions of marriage, um, but she and her sister have made a pact that they're not going to marry anybody because if they get married, um, then they're just having babies as like free labor to their, their owners. And so they're not going to get married until they get their freedom. <clears throat> so she turns down Emmanuel, even though he's like super nice. Um, and then we find out that the Colburn's relatives, the Demoignettes, are coming to visit. And it's like a count and a countess and their daughter, Francesca. Francesca is like the fucking worst human being on the planet. <laughs> she's just like so high and mighty. She's awful. She hates slaves. Like she is just awful and finds every reason to just cause trouble. And she also hates Sarah. She just hates Sarah. So just like keep that in mind. So Sarah has been asked to go to the infirmary. So she's really relieved she's getting away from Francesca that day. But then she sees this little dog kind of digging around and she's like, what are you doing dog? And she goes over the dog has an ear with an earring and the ear belonged to Anna who's Anna's ear and her special earring. Um, so Sarah's like, Holy shit. And she like runs inside the house and she's like, I found an ear, Emmanuel. Look, I found an ear. And he's like, Holy shit. So he calls in all the overseers. Finally, Matthew shows up and he's like, what's this? I hear about an ear. Um, and they go to open up the little like package she brought in with the ear and the ear is gone, which means somebody, one of the overseers, somebody in that office took the ear. So Matthew goes and like pats everybody down and you know, there's no ear. And so he's like, okay, well, I believe you, Sarah, that you saw this ear, um, but something's fucky. We got to figure out what this is. So Sarah and Matthew become detectives and detective Sarah and Matthew, they go over to Anna and Mila's cottage and they go in and they realize it's spotless. But they're not, they were never really known as like good housekeepers. They're kind of like messy young women. And so they're like, obviously it's too clean. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Matthew's like, I, I, I they were murdered. They're, they haven't run away. They've been murdered. You found her ear. So they kind of deduce that whoever did this was able to go into the plantation during the festival, kill these two women, hide their bodies, clean their house and leave without being spotted, which means it's somebody on the plantation who knows the plantation. So they've got their backs up. Meanwhile, Francesca gets really pissed at Sarah because she gave her white daisies instead of red daisies. And she's like, I, I fucking hate you. Go get me red daisies, you stupid idiot. And she's like, I can't leave the plantation without a note because it's in this valley really far away. So she um, gets a letter from um, Mistress Colburn to go get these daisies. And she um, goes out to Blue Valley with her sister, which is where you could pick these daisies. But they start hearing these noises and they're like, oh my God, what if there's like somebody watching us? And I was like, oh my God, is serial killer? It wasn't. <laughs> Turns out there's a party cave in Blue Valley and the party cave is for everybody. So there's black people, white people all hanging out, like ain't no biz. Like they're, they're drinking they're eating. They're having a great time. They're making out. It's a lovely, totally inclusive space. And they meet their friends there who are like, um, like lords and, and dukes and stuff. And um, it's a great time. They're really excited. But um, Sarah's sister's like, you can't ever go back there. Like if you get caught, you will get lynched. And she's like, okay. But then she tells all her friends at the plantation and Matthew and they go back. Um, and they, they're there and Sarah's decided she's going to go try and find Matthew. Um, and she does find him and he's like drunk as hell. He's drunk as hell. He's upset. He's making out with this girl called Catherine McKinley. 
And Catherine McKinley is like the daughter of Dr. McKinley, who's from Scotland. And Catherine's there with her servant, Sally. And they're like, hey, we're going to Canada. Like, we want to be together. We're in love. And we can't live here as free people. Uh, well, Sally couldn't because she was black and Catherine's a lesbian. Um, so they're like, we're going to Canada tonight. Fuck all y'all. And they're going to leave. And Sarah's with Matthew and he's like, I hate you. You're awful. I can't believe you wouldn't tell me what's going on. And it turns out that the blacksmith at the um, plantation, whose name is Abraham, he's a free black man. He has convinced the plantation owner that Sarah's actually deeply in love with him and they want to be married. And so the... Um, the plantation owner, Mr. Master Colburn, has been like, yeah, awesome. And so he basically tricked them into agreeing to let him marry her. And so Matthew heard and he's like, I can't believe you wouldn't tell me you were engaged. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so um, she like takes him home. He's all wasted. She takes him home, says goodbye to Catherine and Sally. Catherine and Sally get in their uh, wagon. They're like, let's fucking hit the road. <laughs> um, and then... They, like, they start knocking on the carriage window to their driver, Clyde, who's like, Clyde, they're like, Clyde, let's, let's do it. And then Clyde turns around and it's not Clyde. It's the fucking serial killer again. Oh no! Yeah. And so he just like scoots off with them. Um, but we do get, we do get a point of view from the serial killer right before this happens. You know, he's at the like party cave and during the party cave and his his point of view he's like actually stalking sarah he he wasn't stalking anyone else and so it turns out that like he has to kill to kind of um subdue his lust for sarah but he's like one day like you will be mine and i love you and so you know something like this is a person who knows sarah who's obsessed with her and is killing the people around her <clears throat> so Sarah goes and confronts Abraham and is like, what the fuck are you thinking? He's like, well, I'm going to buy your freedom and then I'm going to fucking deflower you and it's going to be awesome. And she's like, joke's on you. I'm not a virgin, like just to piss him off. But it turns out she actually is. And so she realizes like, I don't have any power. Like I don't have any power in this situation, but I can get rid of my virginity because she's a virgin. Um, and so she decides she's going to go to Matthew and there's been a lot of tension between them, obviously. Like, you know, he's very upset that she's been engaged. He, like, reveals that he loves her and stuff. So she goes to him and is like, look, I'm really, I don't want to give Abraham my virginity. Like, it's the only thing I have that's mine. Um, but I would like to give it to you. Can Like, can you just fuck me so I don't have to deal with this Abraham guy? He's like, I don't know. Like, I, you know, I, I really care about you and I don't want to abuse our friendship. And, you know, if, if we do this, we can't ever go back to being friends. And, you know, I really care about you, but I, I don't want to use you and she's like no I'm, I'm like asking you to do this and she's like besides I love you too you know blah 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 so they fuck and it has the funniest line I've ever heard <laughs> ever and I'm gonna read it to you um, I just hope you like some Andrew Lloyd Webber is all I'm gonna say to that oh shit Ooh. okay yes so <clears throat> uh, Matthew and Sarah decide they're going to get married in secret and they need some witnesses to do it. So they go to um, Seth, who is one of the wards and Emmanuel, who's the other ward. Emmanuel's the one who proposed to Sarah, but he's like, no, no, I just, you know, I was just trying to do my duty. No big deal. Um, Emmanuel, because he's so close to the, um, the uh, master of the plantation, he says, you know, don't sell Sarah. Like um, Abraham's awful. Um, he attacked your other ward, Seth. So like, get the fuck, get get rid of him. So they're able to marry, and Abraham's gone. They get married. They're having this honeymoon in this weird like underground waterfall place. Um, and then they decide they have to go. They have to go back to the plantation because they can't be caught. But as they're leaving this waterfall honeymoon, they see a huge fire in the distance. And so they're running and running and they realize the infirmary is on fire. And that's where Aunt Lizzie, the doctor that was training um, Sarah lives. So Matthew's like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to save her. And it turns out she's already dead. Um, infirmary burns to the ground and um, they're really upset. And so they're looking at like the remains of the infirmary the next day. And Matthew notices like this, like metal, this like metal thing that comes from a um like a type of carriage that's only it's like a scottish style carriage 
And so he realizes that the fire was was to burn this um, carriage that belonged to Catherine McKinley and, and Sally, her servant, and they never made it to Canada. They're dead somewhere. And then he decides, he's like, I need to be sure that like, you know, how did how did Lizzie die? Did she die in this fire? And so they go and do like an autopsy, him and Emmanuel, and it turns out she actually didn't die from um, smoke inhalation. She died from like uh, strangulation. And, um, you know, he he keeps this like metal bar that he found that's connected to the, the wagon because it's like his only piece of evidence that he has. But he's also like, Who, whoever's doing this, I'm going to stab them with this metal bar from this wagon because he's really pissed at this point. But he realizes, okay, I believe there's like a murderer on the plantation. We're going to search everything. So they get these dogs, they start searching houses, and then they end up in the home of old Frank and his son, Robert. And the dogs are going bananas. They're just going absolutely crazy. And they lift up this floorboard and there's a bait and tackle box and in it are body parts. So like fingers and ears and all these little like knickknack body parts with earrings and shit on them. And so it's the evidence. And they decide that it's actually Robert who is the murderer. And you're like, oh, fuck. So but because he was killing slaves, they're not considered property. Like they're not, sorry, they're not considered people. They're considered like animals. So the police are going to charge him with poaching instead of murder. And Frank's like, I'll just mortgage my house and pay his uh, bail. And, you know, he can be exiled. So he, he does. And then Robert leaves and um, the murders stop. And you're like, wow, okay. Well, it was Robert this whole time. But the story's not even half done yet. So I'm like, okay. So, um... At this point, um, um, old Frank is pissed. He's really pissed off. And he shows up at um, the infirmary once it's kind of rebuilt, asking for, like, some help with, like, an ailment in the middle of the night. And so Sarah's trying to help him. And he, like, rips off his pants and he's going to rape Sarah because he's mad. He thinks that, like, she's the reason that his son got sent away and he's drunk and he's horny and it's, like, Oh, he going to rape her. And so they're like wrestling and she cuts him with a scalpel and all this stuff. And then he won't leave her alone. And so there's just a random black mamba in a tank there. So she whips out this snake and is like, stay away from me or I'll kill you. And um, she's like waving the snake at him and he gets out of there. And um, on their honeymoon, um, Matthew had given Sarah this necklace that was like a replica of his mother's necklace because his father had had it made and said, you know, when you meet the woman that you love, you know, take it and give it to her. So she has this necklace, but it got broken during the the, the kerfuffle with old Frank. Well, Francesca shows up again and she's being real bitchy. And um, she's like, why do you have my aunt's necklace? And she's like, no, no, it's not what you think. Like, I got it from Matthew. And she's like, I don't believe you. She's like, no, no, we actually, we're actually married. I'm having this kid. Like, can and she's like, I don't believe you. So she takes um, she takes um, Sarah out and like she, Sarah starts getting whipped by old Frank. And then Matthew shows up and kicks everyone's ass and then um, takes her away and saves her and they fix her up. And Francesca at this point, he's they have this big altercation where he's like, if you were a man, I would hit you. And um, she's like, fucking try it. Try it. And so the way his parents decide they're going to solve the situation is by forcing Matthew to marry Francesca. And he's like, I'm already married to Sarah and she's having my kid. He, and they're like, so what? Just keep her as your mistress. Marry Francesca. Like, it's fine. Um, but Francesca's like, she just feels like she's one. And at this point, she's like, well, since I'm going to be a married woman, I'm going to go to church and just like get my, you know, my soul clean so I can, you know, get married. Um, and they're like, you can't go look at the sky outside. Like there's going to be a tornado. And she's like, I'm going to do whatever I want. So she takes out, um, she goes with this guy named Aaron, who's like a slave that she's been fucking. Um, and he's like, we can't go. There's a tornado. She's like, no. And they go and they literally get hit by a tornado, Julie. Oh, my God. They literally get hit by a tornado and she gets pinned between like two fallen trees. And then she looks up and there's like another like big log that's going to fall on her. And Aaron's like trying to get her out, even though he's got all these broken ribs. She's like, no, you got to go, go save yourself. Da, da, da. And um, then the tree falls on her and she dies and she wakes up in hell. So that's up until this point, there's no magic in this book. 
There's no, there's nothing. There's no magic. But Francesca, who's an awful, awful human being, wakes up in hell. Um, and she's like, oh, shit. I'm really that bad. <laughs> I'm going to go to hell. I'm here now. Um, and so she starts doing the Lord's Prayer, but she wakes up and it's like moments before this thing's going to fall on her. And then um, Aaron saves her. And she realizes, like, she needs to be a better person. And, you know, she's like, I love you, Aaron. Um, and so this is important to the story because she, like, becomes a really good guy in the end. So that happens. And then Matthew and Sarah decide they're going to run away together. And um, as they're doing that, these, these like, overseers show up. And they grab Sarah and they grab Matthew. They separate them. They put Matthew in, like, a cellar. And they take Sarah away. And then... As Matthew's trying to like break out of the cellar, he hears this like the slaves walking by singing like a funeral song. And he's like, who died? Like who died? And it turns out that his father had Sarah burned at the stake because they found like abortion herb remedies in the clinic. And so they're trying her as a witch. And so they burn her at the stake while he's like locked up. So that was their solution to like keep them apart. So Matthew's just like, fuck, this is bullshit. He's all upset. Uh, Turns out it wasn't Sarah. Nobody got burnt. Well, somebody did get burnt in a whole other part of the story that I don't even need to go into, but there was a whole Black Mamba thing again. It was awesome. Um, So he goes, he finds out that Sarah was actually sold to um, old Frank's parents another plantation in new orleans so he's like i'm gonna fucking go get them but he has a big kerfuffle with old frank he ends up killing old frank whole thing goes to new orleans he's there he finds her and um he has to like try and and get her out of there but it turns out that robert who was the uh, the, the other overseer that they sent away he's at this plantation and he's really pissed and he finds sarah and he's like i'm gonna come here later and i'm gonna rape you like just brace yourself. So Sarah, meanwhile, is like scared and she's like huddled in a corner waiting for him to show up. And I'm like, you almost killed a woman with your bare hands. Like, why are you scared? Like, why are you scared? Just fucking kill him. But um, anyway, so Matthew shows up. They flee. They end up going to this casino that's also the Underground Railroad. Robert shows up to rape her and he's like, she's not here. So they decide they're going to go to the casino, but they don't have a warrant. So they can't take them. And then um, Matthew receives this big envelope and he gets this idea after he reads the letter in it of how they're going to smuggle her out of New Orleans. And um, because she doesn't have any papers or anything. So what they end up doing is that he pretends he's like a slave hunter and he buys her freedom because francesca sent him all this money to buy her freedom sarah's freedom yeah so after all that she like saves the day so he um is able to get her onto the ship that's going to france um but robert finds out and he like gets on there they end up throwing him overboard it's great they go to france four years later so four years later they've been living in france and um sarah's become a doctor like a full-fledged doctor Uh, Matthew's become like a successful architect. It's great. Everybody's happy. Everybody's doing well. Lots of like white noblemen have married black slaves. Um, It's weird, but it's, it's okay. But then he gets a letter saying, Hey, your mom's dying of liver cancer. Um, I need you to come home. And he's like, I'm not coming home unless you free all the slaves on the plantation. And so because the parents are desperate to see him, they're like, cool. They free all the slaves on the plantation. So he goes home with Sarah. They're welcomed. It's lovely. The mother's dying. But, like, Francesca's there with her new husband and, like, his sister's home. Like, the whole bit. They're all there. Um, And Sarah gets – she discovers that, like, the – Mrs. Colburn actually isn't – doesn't have liver cancer. She's being poisoned with, like, mushrooms in the soup that she's been eating that Emmanuel's been preparing because he always wanted to be a chef. So that when they got rid of all the slaves, he stayed on to, like, be their cook. And he's really, really happy about it. So she's like, oh, my God, Emmanuel, like, where did you get these mushrooms? Um, You know, what's going on? And then Matthew shows up and he's like, oh, my God, there was this letter stabbed into our pillow on my bed. And it's from Robert. And he's here. And he wants to, like, avenge his father's death. And you're like, holy shit. Like, how did he know they were going to be there after four years? Um, so because they called the police after they find this letter, um, Emmanuel's like, okay, well, you have to go get the one of the constables outside really quickly um, because, like, something's happening. Oh, my God. 
And so she goes and she runs outside and um, Robert is there dressed up like the constable. There's a dead constable in the tree. And then <clears throat> there's like this whole big fight and they kill him and it's great. But then she goes back inside and everybody's passed out like at the table. And you're like, what the fuck is happening? And it turns out there was sedatives in their food because as it turns out, Emmanuel was actually the serial killer and everything he was doing was to trap Sarah into being forced to marry him because having grown up next to Matthew in this home, being like an heir to the family, but being like one sixteenth black, he could never inherit it. Um, he just like hated everything that Matthew loved. And so he was committed to like ruining his life and killing everybody around him so he could like have Sarah in the end. Huge big fight. Like it's bananas. Like people almost die. There's a ton of it. And then they end up, um, they end up killing Emmanuel and like saving the day. But in the process, Matthew gets stabbed with a scalpel. Um, and then it's like four months later and they're in Africa. Cause that's where her family's from. And it turns out her father, Sarah's father was like an African prince before he was like abducted to become a slave. Um, so they're being like, they're going through like a coronation or something. Um, and she's really sad. Cause like Matthew's not there. Um, <clears throat> but it turns out he's not there cause he was resting cause he got stabbed in the lung and she had to like operate. Um, just like in the other book where you're like, Oh no, they're dead. But actually they're not dead. They're just like recovering. So it, it had a lot of the same elements as the last book. And I don't know if that's because um, that's just how their fate plays out in every lifetime. Cause I think if that's the case, that's a really smart way to write these stories. Um, and yeah, so like I, those were all the most meaningful parts of the story to make sense for me to like share what the story's <laughs> about. And it took me like what, 20 minutes to tell you all that. And that's, not every single other character. That's not everything else. Um, it's not the story of the over 30 characters in this story. Um, <laughs> but it was still a great book. And the sex scene was spicy, but it's going to lose a point because of the last line in it. Um, my Andrew Lloyd Webber moment. <clears throat> um, so I'm going to give it four out of five. Um, I don't know. Like, also spicy tacos <laughs> but for different reasons for different reasons nobody's pussy gets eight in this in this story but you know spicy tacos are spicy so four to five um for that reason wow i can't believe it took me that long to say all that stuff <laughs> well now you gotta read us your passage and tell I'm, us what the line was we gotta oh, know the people gotta we, know we're gonna do this are you ready <clears throat> i'm ready okay Matthew placed a kiss upon her forehead and whispered, I love you, Sarah, and God knows I want this, but it's not too late to go back to being friends. If you allow me to break this barrier, we can never go back. She placed her hand on the back of his head and slipped her tongue into his mouth, kissing him with such passion that his hips pushed forward without command from his brain. His mind whirling, dizzy from lust and passion and want and need, she cried out in pain as he tore through her maidenhead, <clears throat> and he knew at that point that he'd broken her. Her nails raked across his back as he pushed further inside, and once he was fully sheathed in her wet heat, he dared look upon her. He froze and didn't move after seeing the shock on her face. Guilt flooded his mind as he thought that something that felt so wonderful to him could cause the woman he loved so much pain. You won't harm me, she assured him as, as if she'd read his mind. My strong Sarah. He smiled and placed his lips upon hers, lying between her knees, thrusting slowly and ever so gently while their tongues intertwined. He couldn't believe this was happening. Her pain was only brief, and now her body yearned for the sensation of him pushing in and out of her with smooth and steady rhythm. She held him close and gently clawed at his back as he moved back and forth on top of her, repeating the words, I love you, Sarah. Uh, with passion mounting, he fought to keep his wits about him, refrained, refrained from pounding her like an animal, but soon her mouth found its way to his earlobe, licking and gingerly nibbling at the sensitive flesh. He gave her just one hard deep thrust as a warning not to push him in such a manner, that he would tear her in half if she didn't stop, but she moaned loudly, lustfully, and continued what she was doing. His hips were pumping at a faster tempo, each stroke hard and deep. The curls at the base of his desire were tickling the sensitive bud between her legs, driving her mad with erotic need until Matthew heard a sound more beautiful than any he music he'd ever heard and more lovely than any bird in the heavens. 
It was the sound of his beloved Sarah moaning his name in a breathless, wanton tone as her passion rang free. Her womanhood throbbed around him as he continued to thrust, determined to hear that heavenly sound again. He knew, she, uh, he knew her better than anyone and could tell she was embarrassed, and now she was fighting her desire. He gazed down at her as he drove into her core. Please don't be ashamed. Let go. Sing, my angel. Sing. And that is the book no. of Matthew. <laughs> Sing, my angel. Yeah, and I was just like, fat above the opera. Like right oh, <laughs> my God. Yeah. So, Ooh. you know, you know, that's, I was just like, wow, this is kind of steamy. Then that happened. I was like, no, no. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's why I don't think um, Catalina Dubois should necessarily be writing sex scenes. The rest is great. rest is great. Mwah, A plus. <laughs> maybe, maybe just like you don't need the sex scenes. You're good at everything else. Anyway, I am. Now that that's over and done with, I am so ready. <laughs> I'm ready to hear something good. Well, mine's a real shift in tone. <laughs> so, just to refresh everyone's memories, uh, Andromeda and Mercy are two queer women who. Yeah, in two queer black women in 1820 Harlem. So in order to communicate that to each other, they have to kind of feel each other out to see, you know, I feel like, are you queer? Are you not queer? Am I going to, you know, if I make an advance, is it going to ruin my life? So the scene I'm going to read to you is quite short, but it's them at the pub. So they... Mercy is there to finish the interview that was started at... Uh, with Mrs. Alexander Hamilton at the Grange, which is where they live. And Andromeda has taken Mercy to a pub where she's, you know, I just, you can just visualize it, right? Like really prudish and like, ooh, everything here is loud and dirty and I just need to take notes. And Andromeda is just like talking to the locals and just like having a grand old chat. And they're kind of a little bit, you know, Andromeda is asking Mercy questions about her life and finds out that she's an orphan and, um, and how she's an orphan and all of that. So, I'm going to read you that scene because it is the only scene where it's like the only indication you get that they've both confirmed with each other that they're both queer. Uh, Okay, so she placed the ink into her bag and closed it resolutely. She ignored the tension in her neck and shoulders, the slight twitch beneath her eye. There was nothing to worry over any longer. She would go back to the Grange. There was no cause to ever see the vexing Andromeda again. She should have been elated, and yet, perhaps just one more question. She'd read a few accounts of love from the members of the battalion and what they had done to gain it. Those interviews had intrigued and irritated her. Elijah Sutton's behavior was the most confounding of all. Your grandfather, Mercy pulled on her glove. Perhaps the ale had gone to her head. Yeah, that was it. Your grandfather, he really stayed behind in a British prison camp after freeing his men? on the off chance he could convince your grandmother to leave with him? Well, of course. He loved her, Andromeda said, as if that explained everything. He barely knew her, Mercy replied. I wasn't aware that there was a limit on how quickly a person might fall in love, Andromeda said, or on what they'd do to preserve it once they had it. Mercy felt that acutely. She'd once once believed that the bonds of love were the strongest material in the known world. When she'd been young and foolish, of course. My parents loved each other like that. Mercy stared down at her glove and flexed her fingers. Love at first sight, my father used to say. When my mother fell ill, he wouldn't leave her side. And when he caught the sickness too, they still sought each other out, even in their deepest fever dreams. Mercy remembered checking on them that last time, how the heavy silence had warned her but had not prepared her for their lifeless eyes and the way they held each other. For the realization that their love was so great that they had chosen to leave their only child alone rather than live without one another. She'd hated her parents for leaving her, but had also wanted what they'd shared so badly. She'd gone from girl to girl, always devastated when things inevitably fell apart. She'd thought she'd found it with Jane, had finally, finally found it. She hadn't, but she'd learned why neither of her parents had wanted to be left behind. Love is a terrible thing, and powerful, and having tasted that power once, Mercy was certain she wouldn't survive its loss a second time. Andromeda's hand came into Mercy's line of vision, then rested atop her own, stroking the back of it though through the thin material of her glove. Who took care of you, Mercy? 
God, that touch. Mercy could have cried from the loveliness of it. It was soothing and insinuating and sent both peacefulness and panic racing through her body. She pulled her hand away and looked about the pub, sure everyone would be staring at them after the intimate caress. What will people say? Mercy's voice shook and her heart felt as if it would beat out of her chest. She should have just left without asking any questions, without revealing anything of herself. Asking about Elijah Sutton had been impulsive and she'd paid for it as usual. Andromeda shrugged, the picture of calm indifference. Old Bill over there would say thank ye for the wedding dress I made for his daughter for a quarter of my usual price. Hamish over there would tell me how much his, how his shop that I helped repair after the fire a few months back is coming along now. Bess? She would tell me not to piddle about with a miss with a branch up her arse and to try to find a real woman like herself. That drew a sharp gasp from Mercy. Andromeda smiled in satisfaction and raised a brow. No one judges you for... Mercy moved her head and shoulders about, unable to say the words aloud. You know. For being goddamn irresistible? <laughs> I fucking love Andromeda. Andromeda asked. She wasn't entirely jesting, but Mercy couldn't call her vain. She was justified in that confidence. They might judge me, but they know I'm a good person and a good friend. And around here, that's what matters. Mercy couldn't accept that. She felt a flash of anger at the casual confidence in Andromeda's tone. And I'm sure your family feels the same way. Mercy thought she'd deliver a line that would surely wipe that smug look from Andromeda's face, but the vexing woman didn't bat a lash. Oh, you know, there were all kinds of people in the battalion. Andromeda was right. There was Rachel Jacobs, no, Mendelssohn. The woman had dressed in men's clothing to fight for her country. And a few years earlier, a soldier named John Hunter had arrived for an interview with his business partner. It had been quite clear to Mercy that they were partners in great many things, and oh, how she had envied them. But still, she hadn't considered. Grandfather always told me that it didn't matter who a person loved, but how well they treated others, and what they did to make this country and this world better. That has been the family philosophy pertaining to the general populace, and I'm pleased to report it also applies to me. Mercy felt the words like a blow to the belly. That couldn't be true. No, because Jane had said, well, if Andromeda's words were true, if she lived as she wished and was still accepted, then everything Jane told her all those years ago had been wrong. Lies. Mercy's tears, her pain, her words curdling into ash and her world crumbling in on itself had been all for naught. She, should, she just couldn't discuss it any further. We should return to the shop now. So... <sighs> Yeah, and like, one, the writing is beautiful, obviously, but also, yeah, I just think it's like, it was just such a powerful way of talking about, like, yeah, how there were pockets of acceptance since the beginning of time, and like, anyone, a documentary that I highly recommend folks check out is like, behind our, uh, behind the cellular closet, or out of the cellular, or just maybe it's called the cellular closet, yeah, the cellular closet, which is like, was a book, and it was made into a documentary, about like how queer people have been in cinema since like silent films but and you know like Marlene Dietrich was like wearing tuxedos and making out with women in black and white movies and like no one gave a shit and then like J. Edgar Hoover and all of these people started like clamping down but there really has been times and periods in history where people were queer and it was just like it just was what it was um and so I kind of but it wasn't for everyone and so like Mercy had a different upbringing anyway so just like I thought it was a really powerful way of like flagging and having an honest conversation about how queer people would talk to each other to sort out whether or not they actually were queer but mm -hmm. also like the assumption that like everyone had a homophobic parent and you know what I mean like I just thought it was really powerful that her family was just like nah like whatever you do you girl and that's why she was able to be so confident in the world because she had support and that's like the difference between people who are empowered and people who aren't you know yeah so yeah it was good it was yeah. well done Big I fan. I can definitely tell that like Andromeda is not the type of person to throw away her shot. Yeah. And, um, that was a that was a Hamilton reference. <laughs> but also like <laughs> shoot your shot, Andromeda. Like I like her first letter to her was so amazing and being like, we could be friends at first, and you're like, whoo, okay, <laughs> shots fired. Yeah. She's not throwing away her shot anyway. Um. Even though That's she's not awesome. Puerto Rican and um, <laughs> <laughs> related to Lin-Manuel Miranda. 
Uh, so that was that was um, those were our books this week. I think it's a great way to end uh, Black History Month because we've I think we covered really good ground this month. And I I mean we to be clear if this is the first ever episode you've listened to Rubbish Lab like we've read queer authors before we read black authors we read authors of color. Um, it's not just this month, but it has mm. been interesting to read a series of books this month that it's not just written by black authors, but the characters are black and the storylines are about race and racism in some way, shape or form. And as we showed, there's a real variety of types. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was a good month. I liked almost all of my books. I know you had your cocktail situation was problematic, but I, (laughs) I lucked out way more than you did, but, (laughs) but yeah, it was good. Good chatting with you, Renee. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And next week we're back with mature. Yeah, mature stories. And next week we're reading stories about women that are mature, mature. and making mature and immature decisions. Mm-hmm. I haven't started mine yet, but uh, I hope it's spicy. Because mine's, uh, yeah, mine's a fun crossover story, and I'm just <gasps> so excited, so excited, picking all those boxes. Oh, I'm so pumped to hear that. Well, tune in next week, folks. We drop a new episode every single Friday, so you're not going to want to miss it. So good. Anyway, Julie, mm-hmm. my love, my best friend, the apple of my eye. Do you want to sing us out? Absolutely. Ravage love. Ravage love. Bye. Bye. Artwork for the podcast was created by Karen McKnight. Special thanks to Press Start to Join for production assistance. For gaming and tech news, search Press Start to Join or on social media at PS, the number two, J Show. Connect with us online at Ravage Love on Instagram and by email at ravagelove.podcast at gmail.com. Ravage Love.